0: Um, yes, it is good to be with you this morning. I'm Silas Sham, associate pastor here. And as we worship on site, online, uh, one of the things we want to continue to do in this series is look at how Job speaks to us, right? So over the last uh, week when Jack introduced the series, we, we actually started at the end of Job. And by starting at the end, it was kind of that idea that, by starting at the end, we, we, we see that we're wrapped in to a text and a book that we bring a lot to. Now, we can approach Job with this sense of it's about suffering. It's going to uh, meet us in our suffering. It's going to be instructive for us. That's all true. But the other thing we want to see is that this book offers so much more to us. And so join me for a word of prayer as we... Uh, prepare our hearts for god 's word, and then let 's dive in holy god we 're grateful for the gift of this day we 're grateful for the way that you speak to us, the way that you shape us, and we pray that you do that today in this moment, that we might hear your word. We pray that this spoken word would be faithful to your written word, and it would lead us to the living Word, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray this with Christ by the spirit. And everyone said amen and amen. All right, so as I said, we are continuing this series. And um, if you got our e-news this week, that's just our email blast, Jack wrapped up some of the things that he mentioned uh, last Sunday. He said, Job invites us to an awareness of our human limits, which leads for him and for us to a profound sense of rest in those limits. You we're reminded of our limitedness, our createdness, our finiteness. It's worth repeating because it's something we feel so strongly that in the midst of trial, especially in the midst of doubt, what we looked at last week is God desires our dialogue. Bring that into the conversation with God. Bring all of that into how we engage God and how God engages us. And so God doesn't need the perfect, polished version of ourselves. God wants to meet us where we're at. And this is the posture of engagement. Last week, we really nailed that. How do we even approach a book like this that speaks and talks about hard things? Today, moving on from posture, we're going to dive into the beginning the start of the book. But before we look at the text itself, when I was in grade school, this is in Ontario, north of Toronto, used to live over there. Uh, half my school was in English, and then the other half was in French, and this is from kindergarten all the way through. So uh, French emergent, you know, half of it, half of it. And in grade school, we had this silly song we used to sing, and I'm going to sing it for you. It went something like this: It went un deux trois quatre cinq six sept violet, violet un deux trois quatre cinq six sept violet un moufette. Now, if you know French, you know what that means. If you don't know French, you can hear in the cadence of it, that's a rhyme. That's a nursery rhyme. That's a kid's song. Like it has that playfulness, that rhymingness, that lightness, has all that. You can just tell in the way that it delivers its message that it is a kid's song. Now imagine that you're reading the words, the translation of it in English, and try and make sense of it. Here's the English translation one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, violet. Violet, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, Violet is a skunk. Right? Doesn't make any sense. Doesn't necessarily translate in the same way that the French version does. Doesn't necessarily communicate to itself that, oh yeah, this is probably a song that is meant to be enjoyed by kids. It's meant to speak to us, to play with us, to engage us. Doesn't really do that in the English version, right? Well, this happens with a lot of the poetry and artistry that shows up in the book of Job. Have you ever thought about that? In my experience, this is generally how we retell the story. You know, it goes something like this Job from the Bible, he got tortured and he got his family killed. Everything was taken away from him, his job, his cattle, everything, and he still remained faithful to God and still trusted God after everything was taken away. So he didn't know why it happened, but he still put his faith in God and remembered that everything happens for a reason. You know, this is generally how we retell the story. This is actually Justin Bieber's retelling of the story. This is a quote from Justin Bieber, right? (laughs) And so when he's 16, he's interviewed, and he, he, someone asks him, who's your role model? And he thinks about it, and he says, uh, Job, the guy from the Bible. And everyone in the crowd's like, wait, what? And he says, no, 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 seriously, Job from the Bible. And he says this, 16 years old. Right? So he's intuiting already a message of Job formed in the church, formed in Stratford, Ontario, Canada, represent, right? He's there doing his thing, and this is how the story communicates. This is what he's taken away. Now ask yourself, if you've grown up in the church, is what you've taken away very different from that reading? Generally, at least if you grew up in the circles I did, in church, in those kind of ways, this is pretty similar. It's not too far away. But here's the deal. Job is written in a language that most of us don't speak, The story's not originally written in English. Before it was ever even written down in Hebrew, the Hebrew scriptures were spoken and listened to. They're created to be listened to. And because of this, there's a lot of meaning throughout Job that is not captured on the words on the page, but through the way it sounds, like the imaginative, ironic, double meanings of sounds that hint at a shift within Job's consciousness. So I know you've heard me say this before. I promise you'll hear me say it again. This is a distinction, and there is a distinction, between reading the Bible itself and reading the Bible as Scripture. There's a distinction between reading the Bible and reading the Bible as Scripture. Within Christian tradition, and in the very words of Jesus, we see him highlight this point over and over and over again. Luke 10, lead up to the Good Samaritan parable, right? Teacher of the law says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you tell me. What do the scriptures say? How do you read it? Right, the trajectory, the way you're reading it, how is that inheriting eternal life? John 5, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees again, and he says to them, you search the scriptures for truth, but truth isn't there. I'm there. Search for me. Right? They are the very scriptures that testify of me. This is in John 5. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Luke 24, the Emmaus road. Jesus is walking with the disciples. And then it says, And he, through all Moses and the prophets, all the writings, pointed to the stories that spoke of him. He showed them all of the stories that pointed to Christ. Probably the biggest example is the Sermon on the Mount. The whole phrasing is, you've heard it said, but I say to you. The you've heard it said are coming from holy texts. And he's reframing it to say, but find me in those texts. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Baked into the very framework of how Christian faith is in uh, the very framework of the Christian faith is a commitment to Christ, right? So like, again, we recognize that this book we read, portions of it are shared religiously and read in different religious traditions every weekend, every week. But as Christians, we have a commitment. Part of the Christian faith is a commitment to reading the Bible in a way that reveals the fullness of Christ shaped within us. That's Christian commitment. That's where theology comes in. It forms that. So let me put this another way. Every reading of Scripture is biblical. It's rooted in the Bible. But not every reading of the Bible is scriptural. Are we catching that? Every reading of Scripture is biblical. Not every reading of the Bible is scriptural. So as Christians, we don't worship the Bible. We worship the one that the Bible meant, meant to reveal. Right? We worship the one the Bible is pointing to. In every reading of Scripture rooted in the Bible, not the other way around, it manifests when it's working on us. So in this way, our interaction with the Bible is not meant to be transactional, just like our relationship with God is not meant to be transactional. It's not supposed to be like an ATM machine that just dispenses wisdom, dispenses nuggets of wisdom to us based on how much we put into the keypad. Instead, reading the Bible faithfully, when we're doing it as Scripture, means our interaction is meant to be relational with the one that the Bible is pointing to. That's why, in the Christian faith, this matters. That's where the importance of Scripture even comes in. It forms us and reveals the one that our faith is centered around and centered on. So again, the Christian faith is not transactional. It's relational. And guess what? Our reading through Job brings up this exact shift, expressed in different ways all through the book, but today, it brings it up in a way that makes us think about our relationship with the one that Job is pointing to. So Job is a complicated book. It's a difficult book. The Hebrew consistently uses archaic spellings, right? So the oldest spellings for words, you can almost bet that the book of Job is using the oldest version of Hebrew, the oldest renderings, which makes it hard to read, hard to translate. And then beyond that, there are many words that only appear in Job one time. Or, if they appear anywhere else in the, in the, in the Bible, um, the majority of the time is in Job. So the language is hard. Beyond that, the, the book, it's filled with wordplay, it's filled with metaphor, it's filled with poetry— for instance, does anyone know what a homophone is? Homophone, right? It's a set of words that sounds alike, but they have different meanings. So, for example, think about this. A bicycle can't stand on its own because it's too tired. Too tired. Well, I mean, it has tires, but is it tired, you know? You get the joke. joke. Police were called to our house the other day because Rowan, our little son, was resisting arrest. Well, he's not actually getting arrested. He's just not tired. He's resisting arrest. You get the joke. It's cheesy, but at the same way, on paper, it's clear to see one mode of meaning. But when you hear it, the sound opens us up to the other modes of meaning. And so in a similar way, Job does this often. In English, the artistry of Job goes over our heads sometimes because we can't hear the nuance of the text. Which means that when we read Job, we need to be humble enough to allow multiple readings of this book that we've probably read before, multiple readings of the same passage to speak to us in different ways. And that's not making a value claim about other readings, other ways of engaging the story. That is just saying today we're reading in one specific way, one among others, and can we find the revelation of Christ in the reading that we're unveiling today? That's the question for us. Another characteristic of Job is that it is part of the Bible known as wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. And in, in many ways, it can be seen as a case study that brings together the quick hitter wisdom, the one-liners from Proverbs, and also the nuanced skepticism of Ecclesiastes. So Proverbs sits between this. It takes all of this wisdom from Proverbs, right, the one-liners, and then it takes that nuanced skepticism from Ecclesiastes, and it says, how does this actually look in someone's life? In this way, Job invites and asks the questions that we would want to ask after reading Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and it gives us space to reflect on how these two approaches to wisdom literature, to the idea of wisdom, it looks at how all of that can look in our lives at all. And this is how Job as a wisdom book is meant to work. So, a lot of preamble, right? We've covered a lot of ground in terms of background and stuff, but now let's keep going, launching off where Jack stopped, uh, verse 5. We're going to go to Job 1, 6. Job 1, verse 6. One day, the divine beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and the adversary also came among them the lord said to the adversary where did you come from the adversary answered the lord from wandering throughout the earth the lord said to the adversary have you thought about my servant job surely there is no one like him on earth a man who is honest who is of absolute integrity who reveres god and avoids evil and the adversary answered the lord does job revere god for nothing haven't you fenced him in, his house and all he, all he has, and blessed the work of his hand so that his possessions extend throughout the earth? But stretch out your hand and strike all he has. He will certainly curse you to your face. The Lord said to the adversary, Look, all he has is within your power. Only don't stretch out your hand against him. So the adversary left the Lord's presence. This is a kind of infuriating, strange passage, right? Like, if you're anything like me, the first question that this passage makes you think about is, are we all just chess pieces on a cosmic chessboard? Probably pawns, right? If we're getting moved around and sacrificed in this way. Like, if that's the case, like, why does this wager even show up in the Bible? Does God gamble our lives away? Does God gamble our lives away? Not quite, because just like in the French nursery rhyme we started with, we need to dial in the ways that Job is trying to communicate Scripture to us and hear the questions that the poem, that this book, is trying to evoke. Take a moment and search in your Bible, if you have it open, look for all the times in this section that we looked at, that has the word bless or curse in it. If you have your Bible, take a look. Where is the word bless or curse in it? If you find it, just give a shout out where, or what verse number you find it in? A couple different times. Anyone find one? Verse 10? All right. Other places? Verse 11. 11. Others? The word bless or curse? Verse Verse 5, right at the beginning of it. So it happens in the way that he's talking, Job is talking uh, about his interaction with his children. In verse 10, 11, it's that discussion, right, that dialogue about God and God's self and some kind of court, that's good. If you take a look, guess what? In Hebrew, every time, it's the same word. Every time it shows up, same word. It's pronounced Barak, yes, like the former president. Every instance you see of that word, can flex either way. It can mean blessing or curse. The word actually shows up 320 times in the Bible, and this word interpreted as curse is only really done about four or five times, mostly in Job. If you look at all the other uses throughout the Old Testament, it's normally understood as blessing. Blessing. So what's going on here? Like, what is with all this? And also, why does this matter? That's the more fundamental question, right? This matters because when we notice the details like this, where a word that's meant to convey blessing is being interpreted as curse, the details of this deeply poetic book speak to us from the genre of wisdom literature. And we start to see a theme emerge that can get lost in translation, when we read Job strictly in English and we don't have the background that it lets us see, you know, Job's life seems to be perfect. Right? The passage that, Joe, that Jack read for us at the beginning says as much to us, right? He is well off, he's got it all together, financially secure, settled, perfect family. Thinking about, like, think about all the sibling conflict that happens in the Bible. That's not here. <laughs> That's not here. This family, they celebrate, they party with each other. They're loving each other. It's a good time. And for his part, Job is a faithful man. Verse 3 says he's the greatest of all people in the East. Verse 5, when the days of the feast had been completed, Job would send word and purify his children. Getting up early in the morning, he prepared entirely burned offerings for each one of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned and then cursed God in the heart. There's that word again, right? But um, Job did this regularly. To wrap all of this up, in one word, Job is devout. He's devout. Are you catching this? Like for each one of his kids, not even for sins that have been done, just in case sins have been done, a full sacrifice of an animal for each kid. Job would offer sacrifices. Several years back when when it was Lent, I didn't grow up fasting or practicing Lent. But during a particular year, I decided that I was going to fast lunch for Lent. And it was a noble idea, right? Instead of eating lunch, I'm going to fast, I'm going to pray and spend time with God, seek God. And that was what I fasted for Lent. And the month is rolling along, I'm at a friend's house and his daughter, who had made something early in their day, was really excited about it. Uh, She offered me something to eat. And without second thought, I was like, nope, sorry, fasting lunch for Lent. Can't do that. I didn't recognize it at the time, but I'd completely shut down this act of hospitality offered to me by a young girl, a friend. And after she left, my friend, in his wise way, he looked at me and he's like, Hey, Silas, you don't need to eat lunch. This isn't about lunch. But in your practice of fasting, don't get so caught up in the rituals of religion that you miss out on embodying the kind of life that rituals are meant to form within us. You're like, He was so right. I'd gotten so lost in the weeds. I'd taken something that was meant to be a blessing. The act of fasting. Devotion to God. Getting right with God. Prayer. Taking this time in my day to pause. That's a good thing. Something that's meant to form me towards health. Towards growth. I'd taken that. And I'd held it and practiced it in such a way that it turned into a curse. It kept me from being a life-giving presence, and it kept me from experiencing a life-giving presence. It kept me from experiencing the hospitality of God through a young girl. What about you? In your experience of faith, have you ever practiced a habit that was meant to be a blessing, it was meant to be life-giving from God, but the way that you practiced it ended up being more like a curse in your life. Maybe it's reading your Bible. We're still close enough to the beginning of the year where a kickstart of a Bible reading plan happens all the time, right? Maybe you began with a reading plan, but then life got really busy, and also now you're probably in Leviticus, so you're, you're kind of over it, but you feel the pressure, You feel the pressure to keep on track, so you speed through your daily reading just to check it off your to-do list. If that is you, I'm only saying that from experience, by the way. I've been there. Friend, slow down. Slow down. You're taking something that has meant to be a portal of encounter, reading your Bible, and you're missing the encounter because your focus is on the checklist, getting it done not on God. In the same way, one way of reading this passage in Job highlights this exact point from a different angle. Full stop, there's nothing wrong with loving your children. Job loves his children. That's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with praying for them. That's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with sacrificing for them or in his context, actually offering sacrifice for them. That's a good thing. And yet one way to read the entire book of Job, starting from this moment, is there's a movement from Job beginning out with a transactional understanding of God and worship towards a relational understanding of God and worship. The fact that the the text poetically plays with the meaning of Barak is blessing becoming cursing. It's bringing these ideas together. All through the book, it's taking this thing, this way of talking blessing, life-givingness, goodness, life-bearingness, and it's saying, are you holding that in a way that does the opposite? And the kicker is, are you holding it in a way that does the opposite and you don't even recognize it? Because it's clothed or it's clouded in devotion to God. In his devotedness to God, his blessing has become like a curse— because he embodies a transactional understanding of God. And God's trying to reassure him that there is more available for Job. In this way, Rich Valotis, he's a pastor from Brooklyn, he speaks so well to this when he says, no spiritual discipline can make God love you. It's too late for that. God already loves you. But spiritual disciplines help us to live in God's love, and offer it to others. Spiritual disciplines are inter- or intentional practices that open us to God's grace, and they train us to love well. The disciplines, they don't save us. Christ does that. But they anchor us in God. They anchor us in God. For a long time, I held a view of faith that might be called... Safety net faith. Safety net theology. It goes something like this Life is good. Intellectually, I believe in God. And in some strange way, I don't know how to articulate it. I think that those things are connected. I don't know how, but they are. So I worship God because all the things God has done in my life, all the things I've experienced, I attribute to God. I trust God. I worship God. I believe in God. And I'll sacrifice for God to make sure that we get taken care of. And it's the way that faith has just been imputed. But friends, faith is meant to be about more than this. I do believe that God wants good things for all of us. I do believe that God will catch us when we fall. And at the same time, more than anything else, the thing that God wants with Job and the thing that God wants with each of us is a relationship that is so real that we can feel free enough to have a non-transactional relationship with God. Something rooted in who we are and who God is, not in what God does and what we do for God. When it comes to God... This can be harder said than done. In my Pentecostal tradition, we used to always be reminded that our spirituality, right, the gifts of God and the gifts of the Spirit, those aren't the end goal. Like, relationship with God is. We're not supposed to seek the gifts of God and forget who the gifter is. And yet, many times in my tradition, the pressure of that space, perhaps pushed us towards gifts and forgetting, the gifter. And at the same time, friends, this is what God is asking us today. Two questions. Do you have a transactional faith? Like, no matter how devout you are, as you live it out, is it transactional? And the second one is this. Do you worship God to secure a safety net in your life? Do you worship God to secure a safety net in your life? If Job tells us anything, it is this that plan will not work. It's not because God's not good, it's because God doesn't operate that way. In the weeks to come, we'll explore how God does operate and how God speaks to us directly. And how God can even speak to us in the unwise speech of others about God. Oh, also, God can speak to us in our unwise speech about God. But this is it. This is the bottom line that has the potential today to transfigure how you imagine your spirituality. The book of Job exposes how transactional faith sneaks into our imaginations, even when we are the most devout Christians around. And at the end of the story, in Job 42, the striking thing is we no longer see him making sacrifices for the potential sins of his kids. We just don't see it. Instead, we see him share inheritance equally with all his children, sons, and daughters. We see him do that. He doesn't make sacrifices at all. As we read Job scripturally, reading the Bible in a way that reveals the nature of Christ, I believe that we begin to see a glimpse of a man whose faith has started to finally understand. The God who in Hosea says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, I acknowledge there are thousands of questions that are still left untouched in this book, in this chapter, in the next verses, chapter one and two. There are plenty of ways to read it. We would love to engage you on it and discuss with you. How do we make sense of these passages beyond that? We're going to be doing that for the next couple weeks, but also with these two chapters specifically, would love to engage you in dialogue about how you might read this, but even more importantly, how we might allow the book to read us. That's what we did today. Ask it a question that reads us. Is your faith transactional? And as you think and reflect on that, And as the band comes up, receive this prayer that hopefully opens up space for us to engage the God that says, yes, I really am that good. Let's explore how it is that that can be in a text that's so challenging. Pray with me, friends. God, we are grateful for the gift of this day. We're grateful for the way that you speak to us, that you open space for us, that you invite us to encounter you, and that in that encountering, you don't want us just for what we can do for you or even what you do for us. You just want us. A deeply relational faith. Not rooted on what we secure or what we receive, but on who we are and who you've created us to be. As we meditate on this word and we meditate on how you open up room for us to encounter others, may you remind us of the ways that you are good and that you desire us. May we desire you with a full heart. And by the power of your spirit, help us to discern how you are coming alive to us in questions and doubts. We love you, and we pray this with Christ, by the Spirit. And everyone said, Amen.